Well, good evening. It's good to be together again. I trust that our time together will be profitable for eternity, not just for now. Uh, as I told you last evening, I want to look at Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, in, uh, for the third of the names of God. We're looking at the name God Almighty tonight. It's translated from the Hebrew word El Shaddai. Uh, Genesis 17, 1 reads, And when Abram was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. Uh, the word, the, the name there, I am the Almighty God. Now this was Jehovah that was speaking. Uh, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am the, the Almighty God. So he is revealing something additional about himself, something that we did not know. Elohim, translated God, is the sovereign creator of the universe. Uh, Jehovah, Lord God, it, it, that's his name, and it, uh, it is as Jehovah that he calls man to accountability. It's uh, as Jehovah that he gives the uh, the uh, moral requirements. Now, this evening, we're, we're looking, he said, I am the Almighty God. Uh, El Shaddai, it's a compound word. The, the word El, usually translated God, uh, carries with it the idea of might and power and omnipotence. That being the case, why did the translators translate El Shaddai as the Almighty One? The word, is, the word Shaddai is used 48 times and is translated as mighty. Uh, however, it's thought by some scholars that Shaddai is derived from the root word Shad, which is used 24 times. And it's always translated as breast or breasts, which carries with it the idea of nourishment and the supply of our need and want. When we connect the idea of El, the God of might and power, with the idea as the source of our nourishment and supply, El Shaddai would carry the idea of the all-powerful one who was able to give us all that we need or want. There are numerous passages that uh, would, would uh, uphold that idea. I'm going to turn to just one, which is uh, Genesis chapter 49, uh, beginning at verse 22. This is where uh, Jacob is blessing his sons. And he comes to Joseph. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. The archers have grie sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. But his bow abode in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Even by the God of thy father, who shall help thee? And by the Almighty, who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. So the idea of El Shaddai being the one who provides all that, uh, that we need or want. Now let's go back to uh, Genesis chapter 17 there and consider the circumstances. Uh, this passage is a confirmation of the promise that God had made to Abram, Abram, 24 years old, when he was 75 years old. 
Uh, that was in chapter 12. He said, uh, said to Abraham, uh, get thee out of the, the land of thy fathers and go to a land that I will show you and uh, I will make of you a great nation. Genesis 13, a couple years later, uh, when Lot chose to go towards Sodom, then God renewed that covenant with Abram. Uh, Genesis chapter 15 was a couple years later. God appeared to him, uh, to him again and uh, he said, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Uh, and then Abram said, well, okay, but you've not given me any seed. You know, well, you know, how am I going to be a great nation? I, I don't have a son like, like you promised. Uh, and so in verses 4 and 5, God renews the promise. You will have a son. Uh, and we have in verse 6, and he believed in the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. That faith that he had. Chapter 16 is the, uh, the Hagar fiasco where they had Ishmael and uh, just made trouble. And so after that, after that, the, the God appears again in chapter 17. I am the Almighty One, the One who is all-powerful and supplies all your needs. And this God is able to perform what He promises in spite of the fact that Abram and Sarah were way past childbearing. Uh, they learned what God promises only God can give. And that what God promises, he is able to give. I'd like to consider a number of other passages yet. Uh, just to get this idea of Almighty God. Genesis 28. Verses 1 to 4. And Isaac called Jacob, and blessed him, and charged him, and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan, but arise, arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban thy mother's brother. And God Almighty bless thee, and make thee fruitful, and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people. And give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee, and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. Let's go over to chapter 35. Chapter 35, starting at verse 9. And God appeared unto Jacob again, when he came out of Padan Aram, and blessed him. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. Let's go over to uh, Psalm 91. The first two uh, first two verses. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. We go back to Ezekiel chapter 10. The, the, uh, the name El Shaddai, or God Almighty, is not used as often as the other, but it's scattered throughout the, uh, the Old Testament. Verses 2 to 5.
And he spake unto the man clothed with linen, and said, Go in between the wheels, even under the cherub, and fill thy hand with coals of fire from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in in my sight. Now the cherubim stood on the right side of the house. When the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the, the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And the sound of the cherubim's wings was even was heard even to the outer court as the voice of the Almighty God when he speaketh. So that, the, the name, this name is scattered throughout and uh, it has a significance that we wouldn't give it if we just skimmed over top of it. The Almighty God is the same God that speaks to us from the New Testament and says in John 15:5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth me, and I in him bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. The Almighty God. Okay, shall we have our theme song at this time? The message this evening was inspired by a sermon by Brother Joe Hirschberger uh, of South Carolina. He preached it at Millmont maybe 30 years ago. I don't know if you remember Louis or not. Uh, the present work of Christ. It, and some of you may have heard me give this before, but I think this message has done more for me uh, in understanding who Christ is and what he, ha what he is doing for us in the present. Uh, and it has given me a greater love for for Christ. For much of Protestant Christianity, Christ's work was finished there on the cross when he bowed his head and gave up his life. At that moment, his work on our behalf was finished. Forty days later, he ascended to heaven, and ever since, he's been sitting at the right hand of the Father, uh, waiting for him to tell and go and bring his children home. His work was done. Our salvation is complete. Uh, that's why most of churches, uh, except their own conservative Anabaptist churches, have a cross hanging on the wall uh, in the front of the sanctuary. Years ago, I, uh, we had a Gideon representative give a presentation at Millmont and a few years, a few minutes before the service began, he and I were sitting right up close to the front. He leaned over and asked me, why don't you have a cross in the front? How would you answer that? I, I said that it's because the cross doesn't represent a complete gospel. The message of salvation is incomplete without, uh, is not complete without the empty tomb. Uh, so, uh, the resurrection is such a big part of it. But for Protestant Christian, uh, the cross is the end of our salvation. If we're saved, that experience is past tense, and we can be just as sure of heaven as if we were already there. Turn with me to Job chapter 9. Job chapter 29, I'd like to begin reading at 25, at verse 25. You'll remember the story of Job. Uh, Job was the greatest man in all the East. And uh, he had seven sons and three daughters. And every month his uh, children would get together uh, for uh, time together. And after, afterwards, he would, uh, he would offer a sacrifice. Maybe they, cur they, they cursed God while they were together. Uh, but one day, 
Satan appeared there in heaven. And God said, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Uh, he is perfect in all his, and upright in all his ways. And Job said, well, he just, he's just that way because you have protected him. Uh, if you remove that protection, uh, he'll curse you to his face. And God said, have at him, but don't touch his, don't touch his body. You remember the story. Everything that he had, including those children, was wiped out in a day's time. Uh, and he didn't curse God. Sometime later, Satan was again appeared before God. And God said, have you considered my servant Job? And uh, Satan again said, yeah, come on. It's just because you're protecting him. That's all it is. If you, if you touch his life, he, he, uh, skin for skin, all that a man hath will he give for his life. And uh, say, God said, have at him, but save his life. And you remember the story. He had boils from head to toe and sat in the ash heap just scraping himself just a miserable man and his wife then said you know why don't you just curse God and die just get it over with uh, but anyhow then he had three three friends and these three friends showed up and I think it was for a week they didn't say a word they were just there with him and then they began talking and uh, the the friends were just convinced that Job had sinned. That's why this was happening. That's the only reason this was happening. He had sinned. And uh, Job kept insisting that he had not. That's, what we, uh, that's where we come out here. In Job chapter 9, I want to start at verse 25. Now my days are swifter than a post. They flee away. They see no good. They are passed away as the swift ships, as the eagle that hasteth to the prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will leave off my heaviness and comfort myself. I am afraid of all my sorrows. I know that thou wilt not uh, hold me innocent. If I be wicked, why then labor I in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet shalt thou plunge me in the ditch, and mine own clothes shall uphold me. For he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon both of us. Let, let him take his rod away from me, and let not his fear terrify me. Then would I speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. Uh, Job's reaction here was, if only there was a daysman that could sit us both down and we could talk this thing out. The word daysman uh, is an old English word meaning an, arbitra uh, an, uh, an arbitrator or a, maybe an umpire. We would probably use the word mediator. Uh, and that's, that's uh, he was saying, oh, just, just so, I wish there were an arbitrator here. And he was sure the mediator would tell God that he was wrong and he was out of order. We go over to chapter 16. Verses uh, 19 to 22. Also now, behold my witnesses in heaven, my record is on high. My friends scorn me, but mine eyes poureth out tears unto God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God, as a man pleadeth for his neighbor. Then a few years are come. Then I shall go the way thence I shall not return. Here Job was wishing for someone who was able to plead for him before God, as a man pleadeth for his neighbor. The story is told of a man who was charged with treason during the Revolutionary War while General Washington and his troops were camped at Valley Forge. General Washington condemned him to be executed on a certain day. And this man had been an enemy of Peter Miller, 
who was the, uh, the head of the Brethren of the Cloister at Ephrata. When Peter Miller, who was an acquaintance of General Washington, heard that his enemy was condemned to die the next day, he rode all night to plead for the life of his enemy. He got there before the execution and made his case before General Washington. And General Washington asked him if this man was a friend of his. He replied, no, he's my worst enemy. And because he was willing to travel all night to plead for the life of his worst enemy, General Washington granted his request and the man was freed. Job here wished that there was someone who would plead with God for him in that way. But who could do so? Who could do so? We all find ourselves in the same condition before God. We're sinners. We are all condemned to die for our sins. The wages of sin is death. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But yet there is hope. But God commendeth his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we confess our sin before God and accept the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross, we're born again. Uh, we, at that time, we are justified before God. We are made just as if we had never sinned. At the same time, we are justified. We are also sanctified. That means we are made holy, set apart for God. Uh, and from Scripture, we understand that there are two aspects to the sanctification uh, process. We are declared holy. We are set apart for God at the moment of our, of our salvation, and we become a part of his family. But sanctification is also a continual process. It's the process of bringing us uh, into conformity to the holiness of Christ. Our salvation begins when we acknowledge before God that we have sinned and we repent of our sin and accept the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. We're born again. The old life was physical. The new life is spiritual. But our salvation will not be complete until this life is over because in this life we always have the choice to say no. Uh, our salvation will not be complete until we're in heaven where we will be freed from the presence of sin. Think about that. There won't be any sin there. There will be no temptation. Uh, in this life, we're freed from the power of sin, but it's always there. It's always crouching, ready. If we open the door, as long as we're in this life, we will deal with the temptation to sin. We talked about that last night quite extensively. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 7. I'd like to read verses 14 to 25. Genesis 7, 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I do, that, I do, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that, that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. 
I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I, serve, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There's been a lot of argument over the years uh, among theologians whether this is speaking of someone who is an unbeliever or a Christian. Uh, and the reason there's been a lot of argument is because of the faulty notion that uh, when we become a Christian, God demands perfection. God demands perfection. Uh, and if that were the case, this would have to be speaking of an, uh, an unbeliever uh, because it talks about, you know, we're constantly uh, under the stress of doing what we don't want to do. Uh, <coughs> but it doesn't, this, you know, as you read through that, you get the impression that this was Paul speaking about the, his experience. Uh, the idea that God... Uh, demands perfection has led some, to some pretty fantastic gymnastics as theologians uh, have attempted to get around this passage. Uh, the end result of all of that is that man is left to struggle with sin and is not really freed from it. Those who say that God demands perfection have developed a theory of imputed righteousness based on Romans chapter 4. And they say that God demands perfect righteousness, and since man is incapable of that, and Jesus has perfect righteousness, uh, he has infinite righteousness, when we accept the sacrifice that Jesus made and have faith in him, then that faith is counted to us for righteousness. It's an accounting system in heaven. When I'm saved, God takes Christ's infinite righteousness and credits it to my account. And since it is infinite, there's enough there for me and for all of the sins of the world. So when God looks down on, uh, from heaven and sees me running around down here, uh, he doesn't see me, he sees Christ's blood covering me. Uh, all he sees is Christ's righteousness. Because it's just an accounting system in heaven, it really doesn't change me. And that doesn't matter because man is totally incapable of any righteousness anyway. I, who am now a Christian, may not live any differently than the world around me. But now I have Christ's righteousness covering me. And so I am saved. That's not what we find when we put all the passages concerning salvation together. I think we must conclude that this description in Romans chapter 7 is the experience of Christians around the world. There is a constant struggle between the flesh and the spirit. For one who is an unbeliever, there is no deliverance from this body of death. Uh, But what a relief it is to read verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be freed from that. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the believer, there is no condemnation. God does not demand perfection, but he does demand a pure heart that seeks to walk in obedience to his will. And when we fail to live up to his will, his Holy Spirit convicts us of that sin. And as a believer, we, we're, uh, we come to him in repentance, seeking his forgiveness. And in this process, we are being sanctified. We are brought closer and closer to the image of Christ. And all of us who have been Christians for any length of time 
have experienced those times of defeat as well as times of victory. There are times when we're living after the Spirit and times when we're living after the flesh. Uh, and during those times when we're living after the flesh, we sin. It's not what we want to do, but it's what happens. Uh, many times we feel like Job did. If only there was someone who could plead for us before God. And my dear people, there is. There is someone who pleads for us before God. That is Jesus' present work on our behalf. Jesus came to earth to purchase our redemption, yes. He came to give his life a sacrifice for our sins. It is finished. Uh, his work in purchasing our redemption is completed. There is no more sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 10.26 reads, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. There is no other sacrifice. There is nowhere else to go for salvation. I heard the story of a man who, uh, uh, in a dream, dreamt he fell off the cliff. And uh, he was falling and falling. And then his clothes, his clothes snagged on, a, on a, uh, a bush sticking out of the rock. And he was hanging there, yelling, help! Is there anybody up there? And a voice came and said, let go, my son. And he was silent for a while, and then he yelled, Is there anybody else up there? There is nobody else. There is nowhere else to go for salvation. It is only through Jesus Christ. Uh, <coughs> and uh, there's no one that we can go to. Paul wrote in, in 7.15, For what I do would, that I do not, but what I hate, that I do. When we sin, when we miss the mark, when we do what we really don't want to do, we're still accountable for God, before God. Sin separates. Uh, but we find in 1 John 2 that when that happens, we have an advocate with the Father. Let's turn to 1 John. First John 1, verse 5, I'm going to begin reading there. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from uh, all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I'd like to stop there for a minute. Uh, from these verses, I conclude that all, that sin is the experience of all believers whether we like to acknowledge it or not. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Uh, then we come to verse 2, uh, to chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. It is not God's will that we sin. Uh, these things write I unto you that ye sin not and if any man sin we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous there is one who pleads on our behalf at, uh, at, the, uh, at the moment we sin 
We have an advocate with the Father. What's an advocate? It's one who pleads another's cause. It's interesting to note that the Greek word that is translated advocate is only used five times in the New Testament. Uh, the other four times are in 1 John, uh, John chapters 14 to 16, and it's translated comforter. And it's referring to the Holy Spirit. In this word, we have the unity of Jesus and his Holy Spirit. As our comforter, he pleads God's case before us. He brings his words to our mind. He reminds us of his promises. He gives us strength to overcome sin and Satan. When we fail, he convicts us of our sin. As our advocate, he pleads our case before God. Jesus is like our defense lawyer. We complain a lot about lawyers. Uh, but when we run into trouble with the law, we need a lawyer. Why? Because uh, they know the law of the land, and it's their responsibility to make sure that when I hire a lawyer, it's his responsibility to make sure that I get all of the protection that our justice system uh, provides. And that he then pleads my case before the lawyer. He is my defense attorney. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Verse 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Uh, it's another big word, isn't it? Propitiation. To propitiate means to make one favorably inclined toward another. The pagans of John day, John's day understood the, the word very well. They were always trying to appease their gods. They were trying to keep the gods happy. Uh, and so they offered all kinds of things to make them favorably inclined toward them. Uh, but there is nothing that we can do on our own to make God favorably inclined toward us when we sin. Sin separates. Only Jesus' blood can wash away our sins. Only Jesus can make God favorably inclined toward us. Now you're saying, just a minute, are you giving license to sin? No. We are responsible before God for our sins. But it does tell us that God understands our weaknesses. It helps us to understand Psalm 108 a, a little bit better. Uh, 108 verses 8 to 18 reads, The Lord is mercy, merciful and gracious slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth uh, them that fear him. He, for he remembereth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. God understands who we are. Uh, just because Jesus is our advocate does not give us license to sin. But the picture I get is this. When I sin, when I do those, one of those things that I really don't want to do, but in mo a moment of weakness, my old nature takes over, then Jesus, my advocate, pleads my case before the Father. At the same time, my comforter, as my comforter, he is convicting me of that sin that I convicted, that I committed. As a child of his, when he convicts me, I repent and ask his forgiveness. And he forgives me and gives me the grace to make restitution where necessary. And he gives me strength to continue on. Now there's another word 
that describes the present work of Christ that he's doing in our behalf. And it is the word intercession. Uh, before we get into where and how it happens, I'd like to look at an example that we find in Scripture. Uh, and it goes back, we need to go back to Exodus chapter 32. Uh, you remember Moses had gone up in Mount Sinai, was up there 40 days, and the people got restless. Finally, they said to, to Aaron, Aaron, make us gods. We don't know what happened to this Moses. Uh, and so uh, Aaron said, uh, give me your, your gold earrings, and he, uh, he made a golden calf. And they worshiped the calf, and uh, God was very displeased, very, very upset, uh, very angry. Let's go to uh, Exodus chapter 32 uh, to get this story. Exodus 32 verses 9 to 14. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord his God, and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath, and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Let's go over to verses 30, over to verse 30. Uh, and it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, You have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron, uh, Aaron made. Let's go over to verse 12 of chapter 33. And Moses said unto the Lord, See thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, uh, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And he said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry, not, carry us not up thence. For therein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight. Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separate, separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. We notice two things here. Moses put himself on the line. He said, uh, if, you know, don't blot these people. If you're going to blot anybody, blot my name out. And we also notice that Moses didn't back off. He just kept at it. He kept at it until... God said, yes, I will go with you. Uh, Moses interceded for his people. Uh, 
Now let's look at Christ's intercession on our behalf. The first passage is Isaiah chapter 53. A familiar uh, passage that speaks of Christ. Isaiah 53. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when, they shall see him, when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. I'm going to go down to verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And he shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. That's the work of Christ. Uh, prophetic work uh, that, uh, that uh, we are so, uh, so blessed to have what that, that's spoken of. It's speaking of the sacrifice for sin that Jesus made for us. And God saw him suffer and die, and his justice was satisfied. It tells us that he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The picture I get here is of Jesus giving his life as a sacrifice for our sins and then bringing that sacrifice to God and pleading on behalf of all the people of the world. He interceded for all of the people of the world. God accepted that sacrifice. That work is done. There is no other sacrifice for sin that will ever be accepted, acceptable. But that's not the intercession that he is involved with now. He is now acting on behalf of individual sinners who uh, sin. Uh, an example of this kind of intercession is found in Luke chapter 22. The setting was there in the upper room after they had uh, commemorated the Passover and the first communion. And right after that, Jesus told Peter that he would deny him three times. And you remember, you know, Peter said, oh, no, 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 I won't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Then he said, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. He wanted to prove that you're nothing. He wants you. Uh, but I have prayed for you that you sin not. To make this personal, the picture I get here is of Jesus sitting there at the right hand of the, of the throne of God. And he's observing the events of my life before they take place. He sees a particularly difficult situation coming up, just as he saw what Peter was going to face. And he turns to the father and said, Father, we promised Roy that there is no temptation that he will ever face that he won't be able to handle. This one's getting close to the limit. 
Let's giving him let's give him a double portion of grace. I think this idea is borne out in uh, Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-six. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth also helpeth our afflictions, for we know not how we should we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the heart knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for saints, for the saints according to the will of God. Remember that the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, uh, and our Advocate are the same person acting in two different directions. He is here acting on our, as our advocate. Many situations, we have no idea what we're getting ourselves into. We have no idea even how to pray. Uh, at, that, at times like that, according to this, Jesus is there interceding on our behalf with perfect knowledge. And... Uh, he is orchestrating everything for our good. Uh, Hebrews 7, 25. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for him. This is personal. Remember, my dear people, Jesus is always seated at the right hand of the Father, ready to intercede for us at the moment of our affliction. And he may be doing that for any of one of us right now, even as I speak. Uh, let's continue reading here in, verse, uh, in Romans chapter 8, 31. What shall we say then? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If God be for us, who can be against us? God didn't even spare his only son, but gave him up for us. Will he not give us everything that we need when Jesus intercedes for us? When we bring the passage in 1 John uh, 2, of him being our advocate, him being the per, uh, propitiation for our sins, we bring that idea alongside of his intercession. Uh, we get the idea that this includes also includes mercy for us when we sin. Verses 33 and 40, uh, 34 there ask two important questions. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? Christ died for our sins and also rose again for us. The answers are assumed. There is no one can. No one can uh, lay anything to the charge of God's elect. But you know, there is one who is attempting to do that. That's Satan himself. Revelation 12.10 calls him the accuser of the brethren. Someday he's going to be cast down, but he is there in heaven. Uh, he, he has access to heaven and is accusing us. Uh, from this passage and from the book of Job, we get the idea that he has free access uh, to God. And he is up there day and night accusing God's people whenever they sin. I think Satan would like to think of himself as the prosecuting attorney. But Jesus 
is our advocate, our defense attorney. The picture I get is of Satan swaggering in before God and saying, you call that Roy Longenecker down there a child of yours? He was just in a tight spot, and he, he really fudged on the truth. He's, he's no good, that guy. You call him a child of yours? Uh, then Jesus, my advocate, leans over from God's right hand and says, Yes, Father, he did. But I died for him. And he has accepted my salvation and confessed his sin before us. He sinned at this moment, but I know that when I convict him of that sin, uh, he will repent. His heart is right with you, Father. Let's give him a double portion of mercy and grace. And at the same time, he's pleading his case before the Father. Uh, his Holy Spirit is convicting me of that sin and giving me the grace to repent of it and turn away from it. And that scene plays out over and over again. Satan accusing, Jesus interceding on our behalf. And because of the foreknowledge of his foreknowledge of the events of our lives, also the foreknowledge of our, the condition of our hearts, we do not receive the punishment that we deserve, and we are given favor with God uh, and strength to help in time of need. That is the present work of Christ. Uh, if he were not interceding for me, I would be condemned unless I kept God's commandments perfectly all the time. And the Old Testament proved that that was not possible. We need the present work of Christ in our lives just as much as we needed his redemption that he provided for us in Calvary. Our salvation is dependent on three things. Two things are certain. Jesus purchased our redemption through his death on the cross. That's certain. It's finished. Jesus will be faithful in interceding with God on our behalf. It is certain. It's ongoing. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 reads, But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able to save them to the utmost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. But our salvation is also dependent upon a decision of our will to repent of our sins, uh, to repent when he convicts us of our sins. And the pages of history contain many accounts of those who started and then said no. Hebrews 10.26, For if we sin willfully, after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. Uh, so, it is certain that our salvation is, you know, Jesus purchased our redemption. He will be faithful in pleading on our behalf. That's ongoing. Uh, but our part is to confess our sins and to... Uh, receive his forgiveness and move from there so he is working every day on our behalf in the courts of heaven his Holy Spirit is working in our lives every day to bring us to maturity in Christ our ultimate sal salvation is dependent on his continued work uh, without it we're lost uh, it's only because of his redemptive work on Calvary that we've been given eternal life in the first place. And it's only because of his intercessory work on our behalf today that we can be victorious and that we can be assured of he entering heaven's gate someday to be with him. Never forget it. Always thank him for it because it's it's real.
I guess this evening I'd I'd like the the question is are you responding when the Holy Spirit convicts you when Jesus is acting as our uh, on our on our behalf speaking to us his Holy uh, that's his work is secure he will continue but are you faithful and I guess that's the question that I want to give tonight.